then we'll get right into our uh, topic for this morning. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we know that your ways are not our ways, and your thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and yet you've revealed to us something of your ways. You've given us a hint, a glimpse of your thoughts. At best, Lord, we, uh, we putter around in the foothills of your wonderful redemptive plan. We pray that you would give us a glimpse, a greater glimpse of how to be wise in this world, how your word tells us these things. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, friends, I'm glad you're here with us. We've been covering uh, each individual book. We've been covering uh, Proverbs. We've hit Ecclesiastes. Last week, we uh, gave a brief space to Job. And uh, this week, we're going to do uh, something that, that hopefully is going to help us actually understand what it means, what the Bible says when it calls us to be wise. We're going to do something uh, shamelessly. I, I'm taking this from Derek Kidner, who I still recommend. If you want one guy who gets wisdom generally right, you can do far worse than uh, probably about five bucks each on Amazon these days. Probably cheaper if you get the used versions. Uh, Derek Kidner, I'll just write his name out. He's an old Brit. He has one flaw, one real flaw. Uh, he writes too sparsely, too concisely at times. Not my problem, uh, but uh, at least in terms of talking. But um, he, he, he writes in very pithy, laconic, terse, yet beautiful statements. Uh, so Kidner, highly recommend his work on the Psalms in the Tyndale series. Again, very cheap. His work on Proverbs, very good, very, very cheap as well. And uh, he has one on, on Ecclesiastes. But this is his book. Uh, I forget what he calls it, but uh, he has a chapter called Wisdom and Counterpoint. I don't agree with all of what he says here, so I'll, I'll bring that out. But uh, just the very fact, the very fact that we have these three books, right? We have uh, Proverbs, we have uh, Ecclesiastes, and we have Job. Right? We have these three books here in the Bible, and they're all categorized as wisdom. And then we have, of course, the New Testament, right? You have the New Testament that somewhere, somehow, we got to fit Jesus in all of this. So how do these four things, I don't claim to be a graphic designer when it comes to, uh, you know, arrows and drawing. How do these four things fit together? How do you put together Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, and then Jesus? And I'm going to use a couple of mixed metaphors here. I'm going to use uh, one metaphor of uh, houses. You know, if you have Proverbs, if you think of the house of the, uh, of the, of the lady, uh, Lady Wisdom, chapter 31. The, the lady has a beautiful house. She does great construction work. You know, it's all, uh, I can't even draw a house. Maybe, I, I guess I'll try like something like that. There's a house. You know, it's a very happy house. There's your smiley face for it. Proverbs is the well-ordered, well-fit-together, beautiful house. Everything is proper. Everything is right. It's in its place. Well-structured, well-built upon the rock. And then Ecclesiastes, you know, you have a, a, maybe a, a, a great house, an even bigger house. That's not much bigger. You have a great house, a, a larger house. And, and yet in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, I'll turn there so you don't have to. Verse. Well, let me see here. Yes, verse, uh, verse 3 and verse 4. In the days when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few, not like grinding music, but grinding the grain, I believe, and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut. 
You see the image there? It's the image of a great house. A great house, but decaying. Sad base, right? Uh, we live in an emoji world, so I feel okay using these sort of images. <clears throat> in 12, 3, and 4, describe the house as a beautiful house, and yet it's rotting, it's decaying. That's the picture of life under the sun. We looked at that two weeks ago. Under the sun, not meaning uh, atheistic worldview or whatever. Uh, under the sun, uh, meaning life under the common curse, life in a fallen world. And then you have Job. And Job is really, uh, you know, the broken house. I don't have an emoji for that one. Uh, maybe a crying face. Um, you can draw it yourself. It's a broken house, right? Job is the house that's been ruined. And yet, of course, at the end, there is uh, vindication. So you have these pictures, uh, if you want to use a metaphor, you have these three houses, you have these three takes on what it means to be a wise person. Which one's right? There's a very cynical way of putting it that is common today that says Proverbs is for the naive, stupid people. They think life works like this. That's not the real world. Look at that Ecclesiastes. There's some truth to that. That that life can be a great decay. And then, of course, uh, there's the great question of Job. How do you live when the righteous suffer? How do you live in a world of the righteous person when you're going to suffer and you're not getting what Proverbs talks about? So let me just describe a little bit about what, uh, what Proverbs says. This is the point we've made over and over again. The book of Proverbs tells us that there is a reality. There is an order to things. There's a pattern in this world that you have to get with. There is the grain on the cat that you have to be petting the right way. Yesterday, my wife was sitting in her chair reading a book or something. I don't really know. And uh, she pet the cat, and the cat was nice. And then suddenly she pet the cat in a way that was not great, and the cat started to attack because she didn't pet in the proper way. Proverbs tells us that there is a proper way. Chapter 10 of Proverbs. Let me just read some samples here. Proverbs 10. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. If you're lazy, you're going to be poor. Lazy hands, but diligent hands bring wealth. Here's another one. Verse 11. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. So what you say it can bring health, it can bring disaster. And the righteous will bring health and the wicked bring disaster. You see, Proverbs depicts this, early, this world that's in order. It's made by God. You do right, you will live right. You live right, you'll be right. Things will go right for you. If you love others, you'll be loved. If you forgive others, you'll be forgiven. If you work hard, you'll prosper. And then we come to, <clears throat> we come to the book of Job, for example. Come to the book of Job. Here's a question for us. Right? This is what we call this principle, by the way. The technical term for the Proverbs principle is the principle of retribution. Or if you want a really nerdy way of putting it, uh, the scholars term it the act-consequence nexus. Who cares? In other words, actions have consequences. Good actions, good consequences. Bad actions, bad consequences. But this principle of retribution. You do well, it will go well with you. You train the child in the way they'll go, and when they are old, they won't depart from it. 
And so if your kid departs from it, you've been a bad parent. And of course, you know, plenty of folks have used that to club their, uh, to club parents, to, to brutalize the souls and uh, make parents feel guilty, right? But the problem is, of course, that we, we do see good people. We see hardworking people. You know people who work their hand to the bone and they're not wealthy. I mean, they've been at the same job for decades and they're not rich. They're exploited. You see people who are good, whose names never get credit for what they've done. You've done that. You know. You've worked hard and people don't give you the credit. You've been trampled upon. See, people all the time try to be good parents, good sons, good daughters, and it fails. Lives don't go right. So the problem is, of course, that how do we put these pictures, how do we put these houses together? And we're going to proceed here by uh, kind of comparing Proverbs to both of these books. I think that's the best way to go about it. Uh, We'll first compare Proverbs and Job, then Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and then we'll look at Christ uh, and and the New Testament more broadly and and kind of get a picture of what wisdom actually is and how do we fit all of these different perspectives together. You see, part of our modern issue is that we look at verses and books. We look simply at individual verses. This is why the politicians tweet out Proverbs. They're very tweetable. Right? They're really good proverbs. But I don't know a politician who looks at the whole Bible and says, this is what wisdom is. We don't memorize the whole Bible. We memorize little chunks here and there. It's good to memorize it. But we have to put it together. Or to put it uh, differently, the canon has a specific order. And the order of the canon is Proverbs, then Ecclesiastes. The canonical ordering of Scripture matters. We believe that God intended for Ecclesiastes to be read after Proverbs. And we don't do that. You know, I mean, how many Bible reading plans have you done where you read the Psalms and the Proverbs over and over again, and then, you know, maybe once sometime you'll go through Ecclesiastes? It's very common for us to do that. You know, I know there's, Jim, you can tell me, right? Don't the Gideons put together Psalms and Proverbs in a little booklet with the New Testament occasionally? Maybe I'm mistaken. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Do they ever put Ecclesiastes in there? <laughs> sure, they, yeah, they don't, right? Because, yeah, right? Uh, there's something to it. Yeah, you got to get the whole, the, whole, the whole book. You don't get the abridgment. Uh, but it's, very, I mean, it's, it's good to have Psalms and Proverbs. I'm not saying that. But if we're Christians, we take seriously God's word, we got to put it together. So let's, let's go there now, okay? <clears throat> uh, Proverbs and Job. Let me, let me uh, have somebody turn to Proverbs 12, 21. Somebody read it while I turn to Job uh, 5, 2. Proverbs 12, 21. Great, classic classic statement. Righteous, you won't have any ills. Wicked, you're going to have a lot of trouble. All right? Retribution, action, consequence. Let me read Job. Job 5, verse 2. Surely vexation kills the fool, and jealousy slays the simple. Same thing. Same principle here. 
The point is that if you act wickedly, if you're jealous, the simple will be killed. If you are vexed, if you're always complaining, if you're always against the world, against the man, against people, you're going to be killed. You're a fool, A and B, you're going to be killed. You're going to end up, and so the point is, just by comparing these two verses among many, that I kind of didn't tell you the whole truth about Job. Because Job actually does depict a happy, orderly house. It, it depicts the same principle of retribution. But let's do a little bit of context work here. Who says, who speaks? Job, Job 5.2 is, is a statement, a conversation, a, a monologue. Who's talking in Job 5.2? You've got to look at your, your Bibles. I'm so sorry. Who's talking in Job 5? And Job 4, same person. Who's talking there? Eliphaz. Thank you, Hakeem. Yeah. Eliphaz. We have to ask the question, how does the book of Proverbs use this principle of retribution, you know, good, good, bad, bad? And how does Job use it? This is the key difference between Proverbs and Job. They both use the principle, the classic understanding of retribution, but they use it very differently. Proverbs teaches Good people get good things. Wicked people get bad things to spur you to be wise. It spurs you to be a faithful person, right? Proverbs uses this to help you trust and obey, right? To use the classic hymn. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus than trust and obey. Proverbs uses it, good people, good things, bad people, bad things, to spur you to trust and obey. Job, however at least in the main section of it, it's used by his friends, so-called, as a whip. They use this principle as a whip to say, Job, you're suffering, therefore you're wrong, therefore you're wicked. You've been jealous, probably. No wonder people are dying around you. You bad person. You see, Job's comforters use these principles as a whip to beat Job up. Mark that, because we'll come to that later. Greg, you had your hand up. And that's a really key. I'm, I'm glad you put that way, that way, Greg. Um, could you help me transition to my next point? You know, it's really good. It's the, the conclusion here, and I hate to, to do it very briefly here, um, <clears throat> is that Proverbs is actually not simply an uh, easy answer kind of fix. Proverbs is not simply a generalized principle of uh, good, good, bad, bad. Because there are times, and I'm thinking here, I'll turn there, don't worry. Uh, I'm thinking here of Proverbs 10.7 and 11.7 and 12.7. I don't know why it's 7. Don't ask me why. But 10, 11, 12, verse 7 in Proverbs. 10.7. The memory of the righteous. I'll just write them down. 10.7, 11.7, 12.7. Among others, I just picked these. 
The memory of the righteous is a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. 11.7. When the wicked dies, his hope will perish. 12.7. The wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. The point of all these, more clearly than others than some, the point of all these is that Proverbs is not simply saying, in this life you'll have a good house if you're good. But actually, Proverbs is hinting at life after death. Even in Proverbs, there are clues, because Proverbs isn't stupid. It's not merely simplistic. There are clues when Proverbs looks beyond death and says, only in the afterlife will the righteous be get their full reward. And that shows us that these Proverbs are not simply a law. One of the big points I'm trying to make here, the whole, the whole class, is that we misuse wisdom if we think they're, it's a law. One of the great errors of the Pharisees, one of the great errors of the Jews, one of the great errors of Job's comforters, which is what you're, you're hitting at, Greg, is that Proverbs are, I want to use this carefully, Proverbs are general principles to be applied differently in given circumstances. To be wise means you know when to, I've been in my head since I said it last week, when to hold them and when to fold them. You know when to do what to do. You know when to uh, speak and when not to speak. You know when to uh, do this action, when not to do that action. But you also know that in this life, you may have decay. You will have decay. And in this life, you will have ruin. That's why uh, Job says in Job 21, 17. I'll turn there for us. <laughs> Job 21, 17. How often is it, this is Job speaking, how often is it that the lamp of the wicked is put out, that their calamity comes upon them, that God distributes pains in his, ang in his anger? He says, actually, you know, how often are the wicked judged? How often really are they kind of given their just desserts? The, um, the, the great Polish, po po Polish poet, Nobel Prize winning poet, uh, Milos, he lived under the Nazis, he lived under the communists. He said, I'm giving it to 40 y'all, but it's just a good quote. Here's what he said. He said, look, uh, Marx called religion the opiate of the people, but now we have a different opium. The true opium of the people is a belief in nothingness after death. This is why uh, part of understanding and putting together all of the wisdom of Scripture is simply this. You have to believe in heaven and hell. You have to believe in a judgment after death. If you don't believe in a judgment after death, you're going to not read this life rightly. He says this. The true opium is the solace of thinking that our betrayals, our greed, our murders are not going to be judged. He says this, I've seen nations in which we've gotten rid of the idea of a divine moral order, the Nazis, the communists, most of the century. We've gotten rid of the idea that there's judgment after death. What happens? That's the opium of the people. I can do whatever I want. I can trample on people. I can get power because I'm not going to pay for it. You see... It's common. It's common in religions for Job's comforters to use it as a whip, to use the idea of heaven and hell as a whip. It's common for Job's comforters. It's common for Christians even, sadly, to use retribution, good, good, bad, bad, to use that as a whip.
But if you don't believe in a God who is just, if you don't believe in a divine moral order, it's actually worse. Because then you, there's no way to even define good and bad. There's no way to even define good people get good things, bad people get bad things. Because you see so often that bad things happen to good people. And good things happen to bad people in this life. And if you try to read wisdom simply from that angle, you'll be a fool. Right? The point is that Job himself says in the very middle of the book, you know, 2117, in this life, the wicked don't get punished. In this life, they don't get snuffed out. They stay alive. The godfathers still rule the mob. That's why Job has to look beyond. That's why Job has to look beyond. Um, so that's Proverbs and Job. The point I'm making is that even in Proverbs, this simplistic picture of good, good, bad, bad is not the whole story. You have to look beyond to get the full picture of retribution. Um, any questions on any of that before we go to Ecclesiastes? Yes, sir. You make that point about uh, judgment and life after death and the context that puts uh, life in it, ethics. Uh, you don't mean to say that there's no wisdom in pagan ethics from those presuppositions. Uh, yes, that, that's correct. Um, yeah, I haven't gotten to this point yet. I wanted to kind of, you know, wait to bring it out. But um, in the Bible, um, there are almost direct citations of earlier Egyptian, Babylonian, non-Christian wisdom literature. The Bible itself, uh, famously in Proverbs uh, 22, um, there's an Egyptian thing, an Egyptian letter, kind of an ethics book, and uh, it's quoted almost uh, verbatim in places in the Bible. And the point is simply that as you see with Moses, as you see with Daniel, as you see with, with many of the, uh, with Paul himself, Paul knows Roman legal codes backwards and forwards. I didn't deal with that in Acts, but it's, I, I can chat your head off about it. Um, Paul knows his Roman legal status, and he uses it over and over and over again. Um, Daniel knows the wisdom and the education and the skill of the Babylonians. Moses was trained in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, we are told. And the Jews, when we actually see it this morning in, in, with, with Jacob, the Jews stole, they plundered all of that from the Egyptians. And the point simply, as Nancy Pierce says, is that all truth is God's truth. And the Bible tells us that there is a kind of common grace level of, uh, you might call it pagan truth, however you want to frame it, there is, a, uh, there is wisdom that your non-Christian friends have that a lot of times you don't have. The Bible points that out. The Bible itself uses, has in it, non-Christian wisdom. Now, it, it, it reframes it. I'm not saying it don't reframe it. We'll get to that in a second. Um, but yes, to, to long answer to your question, uh, Elijah, that um, the fact of an afterlife does not mean that in this life uh, there is no good, good, bad, bad. It does not mean in his life we shouldn't live working hard. We should. Is that pushback or thoughts? Or? Which presupposition? Well, I guess the, 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 quali the qualification I would have with that, Elijah, is that the examples of wisdom that are non-Christian in 
the Bible that we have all assumed that the Egyptians all assumed afterlife. You know, we might have to talk about later. You know, uh, I mean, obviously we can say that that, that an atheist has uh, has has morality, right? Uh, Richard Dawkins hates the God that he doesn't believe in. You know. Right, right. Yeah, and I think we, we can we can look at it. I think we can look at it from different angles, right? So from one angle, you can look and say, yeah, I mean, people are parasitic on divine truth, right? We are parasitic on divine truth. From our point of view, though, uh, non Christians clearly can have a lot of a lot of wisdom. You know, the the car mechanics that I use know how to replace uh, our belt, which they did yesterday. They know how to do it quite well, uh, better than I do. It's not because they're. It's not because I'm, I'm a Christian or whatever. Right, but there's a wisdom, there's a skill in that. We we have to move on, though. I'm afraid, uh, if that's all right. Um, so Ecclesiastes, Kidner calls the relationship between these two. And I think I'll, I'll use a different color here. Hopefully, it works. That does not work well. Let me try this little. That's somewhat better. The relationship between these two, Kidner refers to it as creative conflict. That's not a really very well written. I'm so sorry. I won't use blue again. Uh, creative conflict. Or as I've put it, let me erase something here. As I've put it, um, the but yes. Or yes, but. That's the order I have in it. Ecclesiastes does yes, but to a lot of different things. Yes, but. Uh, wisdom, Proverbs says, the traditional order of retribution says yes, but. The key thing here is that it's not that Ecclesiastes is against Proverbs. They're not against. Ecclesiastes is, is trying to give a broader picture of life in a fallen world. He says, yes, but there's more. Let me give you examples to prove the point here. Work. First example here. Work. On the yes side, uh, Ecclesiastes 10, 18, and 19 through sloth, the roof sinks in your house, right? They'll have house illustrations. You know, if you're lazy, your roof's going to collapse. If you never repair your roof, bam, it's going to fall in. But money answers everything. If you have money, you can get it repaired, right? Uh, you know, if you've been good and you have money, if you're rich, you can solve problems. That's good. You can repair the roof. If you're lazy, the roof's going to sink in. That's the yes. Right? On the one hand, it's, it's 10, 18, and 19. Yes, traditional answer. But, but, 5, 10, money. 
Ecclesiastes 5. Verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is hevel. Remember that word hevel? It's absurd. It's vanity. Right? When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Proverbs says, the Bible says, if you're good, you'll get a lot of stuff. Ecclesiastes says, look, if you get a lot of stuff, who cares? You can just see it. You can just look at it. I'll, I love books probably too much. And, you know, I, the temptation is to look at the shelves and say, book, book. So what? It's a book. You look at it. You love your kids. And it gets great to have kids. And so what? You look at them, they're kids. You see them grow up, but they're kids. Right? The good things. Money. Of course, 4, 7, and 8. <clears throat> About work. Let me read it to you. Again, I saw heaven under the sun. Vanity under the sun. One person who has no other. Either son or brother. You don't have anybody to feed. But what are you doing? There is no end to all his toil. His eyes are never satisfied with riches. He never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? Workaholism. You work till you're dead. Workaholism. Yes, but. Let me go further. Wisdom. Wisdom itself. On the one hand, Ecclesiastes says, yes. Yes, wisdom is beautiful. 2.13. Wisdom exceeds folly. As light exceeds darkness. Wisdom's light, folly's darkness. You should be wise. Uh, 7.19. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man. You should want to be wise. You'll be strong. But, lots of buts here. But, uh, 9, 13 to 16. If you're a wise guy, uh, you might save the town. And nobody will know you. You might save the town and everybody will forget you. Moreover, 10, 1. Just a baby bit, a little teensy bit of folly will, will ruin the whole thing. Like leaven, right? A little bit of folly will ruin the whole crop. You won't be wise. You'll be killed. Wisdom's vulnerable. More significantly, 723 and 24. I know I'm giving you these rapid fire. You can uh, have to, probably while I'm writing them down, so you can get them there. Uh, 723 and 24. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise. How many, how many of you want to be wise? How many of you trot? You're here because you, 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 partly you want to be wise. But it was far from me. I want to be a wise person. I try all that I can. I read all the books. I study the, the Bible. I do all I can. I try to make smart decisions. And even when I try my hardest, I can't do it. It's so far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? There's something about wisdom that you'll never be able to get to. Right? The Bible tells us that, that yes, there's wisdom. Yes, you should try to, you should seek for it like riches and, and rubies. If you, if you manage to get some of it, it's going to be amazing. But you, you'll never really get it. Not truly. It's going to be so far off. It's so deep in the water. So deep in the water. Um, and then ultimately, uh, 2.16, I think, is the, is the, money, the money quote here. The, really the key verse uh, for this whole topic of wisdom in Ecclesiastes. 2.16 <clears throat> for of the wise and 215 really then I said in my heart what happened to the fool will happen to me also why have I been so very wise this is also Hebel 
For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. In other words, you're going to die. No matter how wise you are, no matter how uh, skilled you are, no matter how godly you are, no matter how much you memorize, no matter how much you plan, death, you're going to be six feet under. You're going to be dead. Congratulations. This is your uh, lesson today in church. We can all go home now, right? Well, so what do we do here? What do we do here? Um, It's important to note that Ecclesiastes, I I, I don't have time to get into the afterlife, right? But uh, just briefly, 9-4, a living dog is better than a dead lion. Living dog better than a dead lion. I just wanted to include that one because that's such a striking image, right? Uh, So so, let's kind of try to put all this together, and then we'll get to the New Testament here. To change up the imagery, in Proverbs, wisdom is found in looking at the ant. In Proverbs, you find wisdom by looking at the ant. In Job, you find wisdom by looking at the hurricane. God, the Almighty One, ways beyond finding out. He is the great judge. You're not God. So wisdom for the ant, Proverbs, hurricane, Job, Ecclesiastes, where do you look? The dead dog. Look at the dead dog. Look at the dead lion. The mightiest, the king of all the creatures. What happened to, I've seen the lion king, what happened to Mufasa? He dies. He's trying to do a wise action and he dies. That's the last time I'll, I'll use Mufasa as an example, right? The point is that um, the Bible gives us all three. The Bible gives us all three of these pictures to show us something about wisdom. There is a general reality. There's a pattern there. You can't understand it all. That's what Job says. And Third, Ecclesiastes says, when you live under the sun, when you live as a fallen human being, there are going to be things that don't make sense to you. You're going to have toil. You're going to work hard. And it's going to, not going to mean a, a lick in the end. How do we put that all together? I mean, those seem so opposite from one another. I think the answer is found in the New Testament. Before I get there, uh, I suppose we have time for a question, maybe. I probably shouldn't ask that. But uh, if you all want a question while I uh, turn my Bible to the New Testament, we'll, look at, we'll begin by looking here at uh, Matthew 11. Matthew 11. It's important to note that Jesus actually uses and uh, uses um, imagery about Old Testament wisdom rather frequently. I've already made the point, I'll make it again, that Jesus uses parables. And the, uh, the word translated for proverb in the book of Proverbs is the Greek word parable in the, Greek, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So Jesus' parables are similar to his to the Old Testament Proverbs. That's the point I'm making. Um, but <clears throat> we have here in the, um, in the New Testament a clash between the scribes, the Pharisees, and Jesus Christ. And the scribes and the Pharisees are basically equivalent to, in their use of the Old Testament, they were equivalent to Job's comforters, Job's friends. Right? They, they say, look, uh, you know, uh, Jesus is uh, claiming God. He's not God, therefore he's blaspheming, therefore he needs to be killed, right? Bad people need to be killed. That's what happens. But what's interesting here is Matthew 11, particularly verses 18 and 19. Um, for John, John the Baptist came neither drinking, eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, 
a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified or wisdom is proved right by her actions. Wisdom is justified by her actions. What does that verse mean? And how does that even connect to what he's talking about John the Baptist and talking about uh, himself and and the Baptist was really kind of hardcore. He, uh, he fasted a lot. He prayed a lot. He was a hellfire and brimstone kind of guy. He was a prophet, a real man, a real prophet. Yeah. Woo. He came in. He said, repent or else. All right. And they said, demon. And so a man comes and, and they say, ah, he's a drunkard. How does that connect to wisdom? Wisdom is proved right by her actions. His point, I would take it, <clears throat> is that it's not that actions in themselves are folly. It's not that actions in themselves are foolish. It's not, you know, you need to not eat. You need to fast a lot. That's the right lifestyle. It's not you need to eat with tax collectors. That's the right lifestyle. Rather, his point is that um, the Pharisees have misapplied Old Testament wisdom because they do not see the wisdom in John the Baptist. They do not see the wisdom in Jesus Christ. They do not see how John the Baptist, as the last Elijah, the last prophet before the new covenant to emerge, what is he doing as an Old Testament prophet? And this is a little key. I don't have time to get into all of this, maybe in the weeks to come. But uh, wisdom and the whole relationship between all of this, uh, all three of these books, is designed to help Israel understand the exile and live when their temple has been destroyed. It's designed to help Christians live when our lives have been destroyed and they look hellish. And therefore, John the Baptist comes and he prepares the way for Jesus Christ, the new covenant to emerge. And he does so by saying, you need to repent. The, the, the tree's going to get cut down. Um, and yet Christ says, here's new covenant wisdom. The righteous one hangs out with the wicked. The righteous one makes friends with the wicked. I mean, that's not what you want your kids to do. You want your kids to have good influences. You want your kids to, you know, hang out, your grandkids to hang out with nice people. You don't want them to hang out with the bad people on the wrong side of the track, so to speak. What does Christ do? Wisdom is justified by her actions. Here's the point. If you reject the actions of Jesus Christ, you reveal you're a fool. If you reject his actions you reveal the height of folly. Therefore, wisdom is not simply a behavior. It's not the law. It's not a behavior. It is a person. I made this point the very first week. Wisdom is not seen in following a certain type of path. It is following the person who is Jesus Christ. This is why <clears throat> uh, verse 25, uh, Matthew 11, uh, 25 and following, very crucial. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. In other words, reveal them to the simple. Remember the simple? If you recall our lesson on folly, the simple are those who can go either way. They could be a fool. They could be wise. And what does Jesus Christ say? He, he, he prays to God. He thanks his Father in heaven that these things are revealed to the simple. And then he says, of course, come to me, all who labor are heavy laden, I will give you rest. So I mentioned the first couple of weeks that that's the exact opposite of the way the Jews saw wisdom. Wisdom was a thing you had to obtain, but Christ says, my 
My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Come to me. Not come to it. Not come to a, an idea. Not come to a verse. Not come to a uh, behavioral standpoint. But come to me. The point is that how do, you put, how do you begin to put all these together? You have to put them all together. And I hate to give the science answer, but we are in Sunday school. You put them all together by seeing Christ as wisdom. Jesus Christ is the one who puts together all things. This is why he says in Matthew 12, 12, 6, something greater than the temple is here. This is why he will go on to say in Matthew 12, 42, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation, speaking of pagan wisdom there, the lies of the queen of the south, and condemn it. For she came to the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Christ is the fulfillment of wisdom. All of this complexity, all this tension, it's there. We live through it. How do we live through it as a Christian? How do we live in a world where we're called to be good and we get good? We're called to be, not be bad, to not get bad. And yet sometimes bad happens to good and good happens to bad. What do we do with all of this? We look to Jesus Christ and we interpret Old Testament wisdom through him. Um, oof. This is why when uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it's interesting, uh, it's actually very important to consider 1 Corinthians because the church in Corinth, you may know, had a few ethical problems. They were fools. The church in Corinth had a lot of issues. Just to, to note, if you ever, want to, you ever want to go back to the early church, I don't think you want to go back to the early church. Here's the early church. It's Corinth. It's like our churches. It's like every church I've been in. Problems. So what's the solution? It's fascinating here that at the, in the opening, he talks about divisions in the church. What's his solution? His solution is the preaching of the gospel in its wisdom against the world's folly. It's the proclamation of the gospel of Christ as the wisdom of God. That's the solution to the behavioral things. He does not say, your problem is you haven't memorized the Proverbs enough. He does not say, your problem is you're not sensible enough like, like Ecclesiastes. He doesn't, he doesn't give any of those kind of pat answers. He says instead that there is worldly wisdom versus godly wisdom. He quotes a lot of the New Testament passages. He urges humility because God is the giver of grace. And he shows the method of the cross reveals the wisdom of God. This is why in, in chapter 2 of, of 1 Corinthians, he talks about the Spirit searches everything. Remember this? The Spirit searches the depths of God. What does Ecclesiastes say about wisdom? It's too deep for me. But what does the Spirit do for you as a Christian? Ecclesiastes says, look, wisdom's too deep for me. And it is too deep. But as a Christian, what do you, what do you have? The Spirit searches the deep things of God. That means he reveals everything to you. No, you're not, you're not God. I'm not God. But he searches. Now, we have not received, uh, 2.12, we, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. We might understand the things freely given us by God. And the point <clears throat> is not just Christ, but the spirit is needed to understand. Um, that's why uh, 1 Corinthians 1.30 is really the key verse for the whole class verse for the whole class, 130. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. Not who gave us wisdom. Buddha gives wisdom, right? The TED Talks give wisdom. Jesus Christ became to us, became to us wisdom.
from God. Uh, there's a lot more. I suppose I could summarize it up. Uh, I have time to give you a couple of these. Five, six points. I'm, I can't give them all. So I'll just give you a couple, and we'll, I'll give you the rest uh, uh, next time. Um, a few things in summary. First, <coughs> sin disrupted the world so much that all of our thoughts are in opposition to what is real, what is really true. Sin disrupted our mind so much that we are in opposition to the actual truth. However, as we pointed out, there is common grace. So, on the one hand, sin shows us that we are fools. We are mentally and morally fools. And yet, even the fool can be right by virtue of God's common grace. Second, I suppose I'll just give you, give you the last one here. If you recall, when we looked at wisdom in Proverbs, one of the qualities of, of wisdom that Proverbs pointed out was the ability to see trajectories. The ability not just to plan, not just to get to the plan, but to see the trajectory. If I do X, Y, and Z will follow. If I do this, 10 years down the road, I'll be this kind of person. If I act like this, that's, there's wisdom in that. If I raise my kids when they're young, here's what they're going to be when they're 20 years old. So much of wisdom is the ability to have insight and carry forward plans that have positive outcomes. I'm quoting here from Graham Goldsworthy. In the Holy Scriptures, the following is described as the quintessentially wise action. Here is the wisest action in the history of the... I'm giving you right now, free of charge. Here's the best, most wisest action. Christ, the Redeemer, the Creator, the Consummator of God's perfect plan. He is the one who executes the plan of God that is the wisest plan ever. He fulfills all that the first Adam was supposed to do and more by fulfilling all righteousness and bringing creation to its destined eschatological end goal. This is the most sublime representation of wisdom personified in history. The point is simply, uh, you will never be as wise as Christ, but he is wisdom itself. And the wisest plan is a saving of not just your soul, but the whole, the whole world, the whole universe, right? Yeah. I'll end on that because I, I can think of nothing better to end on than that. Um, Jim, why don't you close us in prayer if that's okay?